Welcome to the Harbor Church Podcast. Harbor is here to connect people with Jesus and with each other. If you're looking to get connected, you can find more info at harborchurch.com. Now here's this week's message from Pastor Josh. What's up, Harbor Church? Good morning. Make a little noise this morning. How you doing? I know, I know what you're thinking. We'll talk about it here in a second. First off, let me say welcome. If this is your first time at Harbor Church or your first time in a long time, or if you're watching online on Facebook, maybe you're checking us out on Vimeo, or maybe you just listen to this on the podcast. Um, my name is Josh. I am the pastor here at Harbor Church, and I'm, I'm thrilled that you're with us. I really am. I don't take it lightly. So thank you for tuning in or checking it out, and uh, just let me preach to you for a minute. Um, and I am wearing a Tampa Bay jersey, for those of you on the podcast that can't see it. And uh, if that hurts your feelings, it's not my fault that the Patriots didn't make it to the playoffs this year. Um, I'm still going for my boy Tom. Um, I did not, yeah, we, we, I, I love him. I and mean, he, he's a patriot, so it doesn't matter that he just happens to be in Florida right now. Um, we have, I have some, some of my best friends pastor down in Florida, um, so they've been giving me a hard time about it. I don't know who sent me the jersey. I don't know if they sent it to me as like a ha-ha, he plays for us, but uh, joke's on them. I like the jersey, so it's fine. <laughs> and I'm, or maybe they sent it to be nice. I don't know who sent it to me, but uh, I'm wearing it, and I hope he does well today. Um, that being said, um, I wanted to ask you guys a question before we jump into the message and uh, before we, we get into the topic that we started last week in this new series. I, I usually ask, ask a poll question, so those of you that are watching online, first off, let us know where you're watching from. Thank you for tuning in that way. I know we got people watching from all over the world, so that's exciting. Let us know where you're watching from, but then you can play along with everybody here in the room um, and put up like a hand emoji or whatever. So um, sometimes we ask like really unimportant questions. Today's question is incredibly important, okay? Um, and it, it revolves around coffee because I know, I know that that's a big deal for some of us. Um, we had a debate going on in the office on how, how much of, of New England really runs on coffee, and uh, I think it's much higher than some people think. So um, I let it be coffee versus everything else, because we were like, well, what about coffee versus tea or coffee versus soda? I was like, let it be coffee versus anything else. And I still think coffee wins. But that's just my opinion. I might be wrong. You can prove me wrong. So here's the question today. What's your go-to drink? Those of you who are online, you answer as well. You can only pick one of the two. So if, you, if your go-to, like if you, if you have to have something, is it coffee or is it something else? And you pick what's your go-to. Um, but you got to pick one. Can't pick both. So how many of you would say, if out of those, if I had to pick, my go-to drink is coffee. I'm a coffee person. Okay, let's try the first. How many would say I would pick something else? That's a lot closer than any of the other services have been. Like the Thursday night was like 90% coffee. And then like the last service was probably like 65, 35. That was almost, not quite half, but like 60, 40. It still went to coffee, but you guys are a little bit more balanced, and hence being the 930 group. Okay, maybe you don't need as much. Um, that really has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, other than the maybe the topic of focus. So maybe some of you need coffee to focus, and I fully recognize that. Um, we're looking at this idea of refocusing. Because I believe God wants to show us things, and we are not really as in tune at picking up on what it is that God's trying to teach us as we might think. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry about coughing. Um, so here's the question. How do you learn from your past? Or do you learn from your past? And has it helped you refocus? Right now, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world around you. Are you being distracted, or are you intentionally going on the path that God has for you? There's so many things vying for our attention. It's hard for us to know, God, what are you calling me to do? I believe that God has allowed you to go through certain things 
to teach you where to go forward. But because you and I are a little dense, we don't learn from our valleys. We're just excited to get to a mountaintop, and then we wonder, why do I keep falling into valleys? Because you don't learn from them. So learn from the times that are tough, learn from the struggles, and see, God, how does that help me avoid those kind of pitfalls in the future? There's such a story in the Bible that I'm surprised that more people don't know it. Maybe you do, but a lot of people don't. And there's a story about this guy, and here's the really cool thing. It contains the very first ever special ops. There's the first time ever that there was a group of people trained and dedicated to a special operation takes place in the story that we're talking about. And here's how it works. This guy, one of his family members has been captured by an invading army. This army invades, they burn down a bunch of cities, they capture a bunch of people, take a lot of loot, and then they head home. And this guy wants to, re wants to get one of his family members back. So he takes his, a group of men that he has highly trained specifically for this, and they chase down the enemy. And then they stand outside the camp and they watch and they wait and they gather intel. And then when the time is right, when the enemy has partied it up, the enemy has had huge victories and tons of spoils and they are getting drunk and they are partying and there's fewer and fewer guards. Then he goes, okay, now we go. And, in, and at night he divides his forces in half and they come around from both sides and they sneak through the camp and they kill everybody and they rescue all the captives and they take back all of the, the loot and they go home. It's this huge victory. Pretty cool story in the Bible. Didn't teach it to me in Sunday school. I'm not sure why. That would have been a cool picture to draw for your mom. Look what I learned. Um, <clears throat> but it, it, it is a cool story and it takes place, it revolves around a guy named Abram who later becomes Abraham. Okay, and this story is Abram rescuing his nephew Lot, and Lot is uh, is like a son to Abram. Uh, Abram, um, who later becomes Abraham, uh, leaves safety and leaves civilization and goes out into the wilderness to wander the land because God told him, "Hey, just step out by faith and go into the wilderness, and I'm going to make a great nation from you." And if you don't know the Bible, Abraham eventually has a son named Isaac, who eventually has a son named Jacob who gets his name changed to Israel, and he has 12 sons, and those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel, which later becomes the Hebrew nation, the Jewish nation as we know it today. But it all goes back to Abraham, and Abraham had to leave safety, had to leave civilization, and go out into the wilderness, and since he doesn't have a son, his nephew comes with them, and it's like an adopted son to him. And Lot looks up to Abraham, and, or Abram at this time, and Abram looks, you know, to, to Lot as kind of like a, an adopted son. So they're traveling together and they're doing all this. But the reason that Lot and Abraham aren't captured together is because shortly before this, uh, this army that invades the valley comes in, Abraham and Lot split up. Here's the backstory I want to read to you really quick. And then we'll, we'll kind of unpack the story as we go. But if you look at Genesis chapter 13, this takes place over two chapters, so I can only read you bits and pieces. Today, you're going to have to go read all on your own. But in Genesis chapter 13, in verse number 6, it says this. The land could not support both Abram and Lot with all of their flocks and their herds living so close together. As they trusted God, God continued to grow. And they, were, they didn't have a lot when they started, but, well, that's kind of a pun there. Um, they... They didn't have much. They had some, but then as they continue to trust God, they, they continue to gain servants. They continue to build their households and they acquire more and more. Now they're nomads. They're nomadic people, meaning they don't have a set place to live. They travel around and pop up a tent for a few months and they let their, their, uh, you know, their herds graze different places. But they're growing so much that, they have, that, they, that the land can't support them both. And so this is what it says in verse 7. 
disputes broke out between the herdsmen of Abraham and Lot. And at the time, Canaanites and Parasites were also living in the land. So we see that they're, you know, it gets a little bit rough. It gets, it gets contentious between their people. So finally, verse number eight, Abram says to Lot, let's not allow this conflict to come between us or our herdsmen. After all, we are close relatives. Bro, we're family. Why are we letting, why are we letting this fighting take place? We're family. And if you're wondering why this, like, why we would read this passage, because I, I want to look at hindsight. I think Lot, who ends up getting captured by the invading army, Lot is not with his uncle because Lot chose to separate from Abram because his herdsmen and his herdsmen were fighting. And they said, yeah, we, let's, just, let's just split apart. So they split apart, and Lot chooses to go a completely different direction from his uncle. Lot chooses a, a very unique place, the valley, the, the Jordan Valley, and it was lush and it has all this. And I'll talk about that here in a second. But he chose to distance himself. And then while they were separated, while he's living down uh, uh, near Sodom and Gomorrah, this army invades. And I did tons of research, and I can't even go into it. Uh, this is a very, very famous battle. The, uh, the part where Abraham divides his forces, there's military schools today that are still studying this passage because it's the very first passage that ever describes warfare and counterintelligence and this kind of stuff. It's the very first one. I mean, this is 4,000 years ago, 2,000 plus B.C., uh, when this takes place. And what we have from this Mesopotamian um, uh, battle uh, that takes place, we have some historical documents. We know that five kings invade a valley of four kings. The four king valley is where Lot is living. Abraham has, been, has gone the other way. We'll talk about that here in a second. But they come in, they, they, they lay siege to these cities, and they, they raise them, pretty much burn them down, or mostly burn them down. They steal all the stuff, and they head out. I think if we, got, if we caught up to Lot, who is probably chained up or roped up with a bunch of other captives. He's being dragged off uh, to be sold into slavery. That was incredibly common for the time. It was a very barbaric uh, day and age that they lived in. I think he had just seen his house get burned down and all of his stuff stolen. And I think as he's being led off into slavery, maybe marched in a line or maybe tossed in a cage. I'm sure he's getting beaten. He, he, he could get stabbed or killed at any minute. He's just trying to keep them from killing him. Being sold as a slave might be the best thing that he could hope for. And in that moment, he's going, man, where, why did I ever leave my uncle? God's hand was on Abram, and I, I could have, I was being blessed because I was with my uncle as he was doing what God called him to do. But then I thought I could go off on my own and do my own thing. And man, I regret being, being divided from somebody like that. And here's where I think you and I can learn from this. If we allow outside forces to mess up our, our, the relationships God's called us to, we're going to miss out on his blessing. So don't let external disruptions cause internal divisions. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because we live in a day and age where everybody is ticking off everybody else. And if you and I disagree, then we can't be friends. And there are so many things to disagree about right now. There are so many external divisions. There's so many disruptions, so many things that are, that are pulling on us, that there's families dividing, marriages dividing, friendships dividing, your, our workplaces are divided. If you and I don't see 100%, then we just can't be friends. And that's not true. There, there are so many external things pulling people apart. Satan is having a, a, a field day. He's so excited about you and I allowing all these things to make us push people away. 
We have spent the last year pushing people away, either from politics or from fear or from a virus or from just our opinions or from the fact that they posted a picture we didn't like. You know, like we just have a million reasons why we want people out of our life. And God has called us to be involved in people's life. They might need what it is that you have. The relationship you have might be something that God has, has for them to grow. And so you're supposed to be a part of their life. Or vice versa, they're supposed to be a part of your life because what they have, God is going to use to grow you. But we have allowed it to cause us to lose out on so many relationships. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 10 <clears throat> says this. If you have the, your Bible, if not, we put it up on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. I appeal that you all agree. That means live in harmony. That there be no divisions among you. That you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. God knew that a united group of people can accomplish more. And yet, you and I are, allow ourselves to be divided from almost everybody. People are going to have difference of opinion. That does not mean that God has called you to push them out. We need to wrestle through this. This is not something we want to hear, but it's something we need to hear. There's a reason that we're in such a weak state. If you can divide people and then attack them, it shouldn't be a surprise that Lot's enslaved. He had no family protecting him. Some of you, you kids, you're divided from your family. You're easy prey. Some of you uh, spouses, you've allowed tension to come between you and your, your, your partner, and, and you're easy prey. With you and your kids, you and your boss, you and your coworkers, you and your teacher, your classmates, you fill in the blank. When you begin to alienate, you become easy prey. Lions love to pick off the person running solo. The, our adversary is a roaring lion looking for somebody to eat. We are making it easy. Okay, not a lot of noise. That's fine. Let's move on. What, what happens when they divide? Abram says this to him. Abram looks at him and says, hey, the whole country, this is verse number 9 of Genesis 13. He says, let's not fight. Listen, the whole country is open to you. Take your choice of any section of the land you want. We'll separate. If you want the land on the left, I'll take the land on the right. And if you want the land on the right, I'll go to the left. Lot took a long look at the fertile plains of the Jordan Valley in the direction of Zoar, and the whole area was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord of the beautiful land of Egypt. This was before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot, verse number 11, chose for himself the whole Jordan Valley to the east of them. And he went there with his flocks and his servants, and he parted company with his uncle Abram. So Abram settled in the land of Canaan, much less pretty, much less water, more desert area. But he went there, and Lot moved and moved his tents to a place near Sodom and settled among the cities of the plain. But the people of this area were extremely wicked and constantly sinned against the Lord, and that'll come back into play later if you know the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah. But here's the thing. When God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees way at the very beginning, that was safety. In, the, in a barbaric time when the world is uncivilized, to be in a civilized city or town was the only safety you had not just wild animals but you had bandits you had raiding parties you were you were you were going to you were going to die if you left cities and yet god said i want you to spread out and fill the earth they build a tower of babel to make sure they all stay together so god goes okay now i'm changing your languages so you have to spread out so they spread out based on languages and then they still cluster together by the people that spoke the same language and God goes, no, I want you to spread out. So he calls Abram to go out and to be a nomad, which is not super safe by the world's standards, but Abram was going to do what God called him to do. Lot chooses to go to Sodom and Gomorrah, to be in the, the valley of the, the plains, the, the, the cities of the plain. 
because it's safety there. There's big walled cities. Well, those four kings stopped paying their taxes. So the king sends his five kings in the area to go get those four kings their money one way or another. And guess where they attack? The big cities. So all the big cities did was make it a bigger target. Lot hides in the city. The city gets burned down. Lot gets captured, loses all of his stuff. Lot chose that because it looked so appealing. It was the lush green areas of the Jordan Valley. It looked so tempting. It was where he's going to grow his herd even bigger because there's so much water and grass. You know, that's the very last time we ever have record of Lot having any herds. We never have Lot having any herds after that. Abram continues to grow and grow and grow. Lot, who picked the lush valley for his herds, doesn't even have livestock after this. The next time after this story is over and when we go back and visit him, he has a family in Sodom, but he's not a, he doesn't have any livestock. I found it interesting that he went after what looked best to him and then found himself with nothing really. In the end, he, he picked what he thought was the better choice, what looked more appealing, and it got him in trouble. And I think if you could catch up with Lot while he's sitting in prison or even after the story is over as he looks back, he and Abram probably have the same thought. You know what? Better isn't always best. And this is what the world tells us is that we always have to have better. We need to look better. Our bodies have to be better. We have to have a better title in our name. So a better, we got to get better promotions. We got to get better paychecks and buy better toys. We have to have better friends and more likes on Instagram. We have to get better and better and better and better. And so it, what it does is it produces in us a greed and a selfishness. And the world keeps telling us, you're not good enough as you are. You got to have this to be better. And so we're like, okay, I'll get that. And when you would, if, if. If you get to attain what it is you're trying to attain, you don't max out. There's always another level for you to go to. So if you get the raise, if you buy the toy, there's always something else. You're like, well, that doesn't make me happy. That'll make me happy. And that'll make me happy. And we spend our whole lives looking for better. And that's not what's best for us. God says, be content in where you're at. Know to be content so that you're not, you're not filled with greed. You're actually going, God, if, I, if I'm okay with where you have me, it's good to want to better myself, but I'm not looking for what the world offers me. I'm looking for what it is you've promised me. And if that's where my heart is, then I don't become consumed with selfishness. Because once you start looking out for you, which is what the world says is the most important, you look out for you. Once you start looking out for you, you can't turn that off. And it, it snowballs. And you begin to step on people. You begin to crave things that you never crave because it's not a healthy way to live. This is what Paul wrote. Everybody loves Philippians 4.13. Everybody loves Philippians 4.13, but Philippians 4.12 says this. I know both how to have a little and how to have a lot. If you have a little or you have a lot, those are great. It's not bad to be rich. It's not bad to be poor. It's just saying, hey, wherever you're at, in any of those cases, any of those circumstances, learn to be content, whether fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. The, the goal here is to find a way to be content. Why? Because Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, or I am able to do all things through him who gives me strength. This is a very famous verse. People have Philippians 4.13 tattooed. Yay, I can do all things through Christ. Yes, that verse is totally true. Yay, I can have a Lamborghini through Christ. Maybe you can, but you better learn verse number 12 first. That means be content with your Ford long before you start saying, God, I need all these other things. Contentment, verse 12, leads to the strength that comes in verse 13. Here's what we don't look at. We look at like us always wanting best for ourselves. Abram was so humble when he allowed Lot to pick 
Abram was the patriarch by rights. He could have told Lot, go pound sand, bro. I'm taking the best for me. He said, I I'll take I'll, what looks best. That land, that grass, that stuff, that looks, I'll take that. You go take the desert. But the patriarch, the elder, allowed the younger man to pick. Nobody else would have ever done that. That was humility and grace from Abram because here's what Abram said. Bro, it's not about all the stuff you can see. It's about the God you can't see. We just sang a song, even when I don't see it, you're working. I may not realize how, God, you're working when somebody else takes the lush green valley from me and I get stuck with the desert. I have to have faith that God is bigger than that. Abram went to the desert and continued to grow and grow and grow. Lot went to the lush valley and he shrank and shrank and shrank. Do you understand? It's not about what you can do for you. It's about who you're trusting. I'm going to start this whole message over again. Way too quiet in here for people who like coffee, okay? I find it, I find it unique that we, we don't understand the heart of Abram there. And I say that because, listen, we're all like, oh, I'm very generous. Bull crap. I, let me pull the person sitting next to you. If we put out, brought out a pizza, you'd be the first one going, ooh, that's my slice. You'd be counting pepperonis going, that one right there. You already know. You know to look out for you. You know which one you're taking, and you know that. And, or maybe it's the person sitting next to you. They're like that, but whatever. The, the idea is we're not necessarily in tune with being gracious and generous. We're almost always selfish and prideful. Let's move on, though. He goes to that city. Lot goes to Sodom because it offers sanctuary, offers safety, that big city. And I think, I think as he's being hauled off as a prisoner, if he could look back, he would tell us, man... Trouble will find you anywhere. As much as he pursued trying to stay out of trouble by being by the big cities, trouble found him, didn't it? Abraham wasn't running away from trouble because here's what it says in the next chapter. In chapter 14, verse 13, it says after, the, after those armies get defeated and everybody starts either is, everybody's either killed, captured, or runs for the mountains, it says in verse 13, one of Lot's men escaped and it reported to Abraham, the Hebrew, who was living near the oak grove uh, belonging to Mamre the Amorite. Mamre and his relatives, Eskul, Aner, uh, were Abram's allies. So when Abram moves to the desert, <clears throat> just side note, he started making friends. He started making friends. No matter where he was, he was reaching out and building allies. Almost like he had faith in God more than what everybody else's opinions were. Oh, it's COVID. I can't be making friends. I work in a really rough work environment. I can't be making friends. Homesize was in the desert, was the only Hebrew out there, and he has allies. You can be friendly. You can build friendships. It's just up, up to you. Um, but moving on, he hears from the report, and his immediate response, verse 14, when Abram heard that his nephew Lot had been captured, he mobilized 318 trained men who had been born into his household. Then he pursued Ketelorium's army until he caught up with them at Dan. I love that they have really hard words and then really easy words. Caught him at Dan. Okay, cool. Here's the thing that I want you to focus on. It says that he, he mobilized the 318 trained men. This isn't all of his servants. He had servants that took care of cows and ones that watered the camels and ones that you know, tilled the gardens. At this point, he had 318 men that were specifically trained for warfare. Other records outside of the Bible that look back on this time lead us to believe that these men were trained in their version of martial arts and hand-to-hand -hand combat and in warfare. These guys were ready. Here's what I want you to understand. Lot moved into the valley to hide from the battles. Abram said, 
I got to believe God's got something coming. I need to be prepared. The two of them, as Abram rides out with his men on horses to go rescue Lot, Lot must be sitting there thinking, hey, trouble finds you anywhere. Doesn't matter what you do, you're going to have trouble. And I think Abraham's thinking the exact opposite. I think he's thinking, boy, I'm glad I trained. Man, I'm glad I prepared for this. And here's where, what we need, to, we need to recognize. As we, as we look at what, what valleys God has brought us through, don't just be excited you got through a valley. Look back and go, I was not as prepared for that valley as I should have been. I'm going to prepare for the next one. Because this is the thing. God doesn't call us to avoid battles. He calls us to prepare for them. If you don't know the story of David and Goliath, David is a shepherd boy who kills a giant and becomes king, but he doesn't have the bravery to step out onto the battlefield until while as a shepherd, he kills a lion that tries to come after one of his sheep. And then he kills a bear that comes after one of his sheep. And it's when he's faithfully attacking the things that he's supposed to attack and dealing with the attacks that he has, he goes into these battles against a bear and against a lion that prepared him so that when the battlefield came where he stood and there's this giant and everybody else steps back because the average person in the world is going, I want to avoid trouble. I want to avoid battles. I want to avoid the things that are scary. There's somebody who says, I've been training for this and my faith in God has allowed me to believe that he can tackle that. He can tackle lions. He can tackle bears and he can tackle a loudmouth giant. And then you step into the thing that God's called you for because it may be, listen to me, it may be that God doesn't want you to be a shepherd your whole life. He may say, I've got a kingship for you, but what I need is I need a son. I need a daughter who is not so afraid of the battles around them that they won't take on what I put in front of them because if I've got more for you quit being a chicken and hiding from everything that scares you go God in your mercy in your grace in your power I can beat all of it so yes call me to it I will prepare for whatever it is you have for me this is what it says if you're like I don't know I don't know about that. I think if we love God, everything will be perfect. Yes, in eternity, everything will be perfect if you have Jesus Christ in your life. It does not mean here on this earth. As a matter of fact, Jesus says in John 16, verse 33, I've told you all of the stuff that's happening. Why? So that you can have peace. Doesn't mean you won't have battles. It means you can be at peace in the middle of a battle. It goes on, in case you don't understand, he says, here on earth... You're going to have many trials and sorrows. If you go to a church or you hear a pastor tell you, love Jesus and you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise and never have any problems, get a new pastor, get a new church. Jesus solves our eternal problems, but yet he's allowed us to be a part of this broken world, the same broken world that he came to because the brokenness needs people to shine a light. If you're looking to avoid darkness, you're never going to be the light that you've been called to be. He may have put you in the middle of darkness so you can shine that much brighter. And he says, listen, you're going to have trials and sorrows, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Guys, listen, there's going to be battles is what he's saying. But I won the war. You're already on the winning side. Just go fight the battles you need to fight and trust that I've got the bigger picture. Ephesians 6, 13 says this. Put on every piece of armor, of God's armor, so that you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Why? So that you could be standing at the end of the battle. And the battle's over, you'll be standing from. There's so many of us in this room, in the world, even people who are believers, who are not standing. You've gotten knocked down, you've been attacked, and you've been broken. Why? You weren't prepared. 
You hear messages on reading your Bible, on praying, on walking with God, and you don't do it. You put God on a shelf, and you're like, he's my insurance policy. If everything really gets bad, if the crap hits the fan, I'll go ask God to step in and rescue me. But I'll ignore him till then, or I'll play church until then. That's not, that's not being prepared. Every day, put on the armor of God. It means prepare your heart, prepare your mind. Say, God, what would you have for me? Today, you might have a coworker who has a question. Today, you might put a, a few extra minutes in between me and my child to help have a lesson. God, you might give me a chance to sit down next to a kid on the bus who really needs a friend. I want to be prepared to be the kind of person that should be there. If, I, if I'm reading, if I'm praying, if I'm walking with God, if I'm studying, then I can be more like Jesus in all those circumstances. But we don't do that. We just focus on us, and then we're surprised. I'm never prepared. No wonder you're never prepared. You don't do anything in the off-season. You're never working on it. He says this in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. It would be hard to tell this to Lot in the middle of the prison camp. You should consider it great joy, bro. (laughs) You're struggling. You got a battle. It'd be hard to tell Abraham on the way to this attack, you got 318 men taking on an army of at least 10,000. Count it joy. How about you count it joy, bro? I'll go sit down. Like, it's hard to count it joy when we're right in the middle of it. But this is what it says. Know that you, when your faith is being tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. You can grow in endurance when you walk through a test. If you let it grow, when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect. See, all of you that think you're already perfect, you just need to go through some more battles and let your endurance grow, and then you actually will be perfect. Because that's when you'll be perfected, you won't need anything. You cannot get there if you keep avoiding battles, if you keep hiding from them. But let's move on. Something unique happens. After Abraham rescues Lot, it says this in, in verse 17. Abraham returned from his victory over Ketelorium and all of his allies. And when he returns to King of Sodom, here's this politician. The other King of Sodom, Sodom, they actually found out, died in the battle. So this guy's brand new King of Sodom. He went out to meet with uh, Abram in the Valley of Sheveh, which is the King's Valley. And then also Melchizedek, who is the King of Salem and a priest of God Most High, brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with, so this is, by the way, this is the first ever recording instance of a priest or the example of a church that we have. Melchizedek represents the first priest, the first church. It says he goes out to meet Abram and brings him food. He brings him bread and wine. The church has always been designed to be hospitable, to be generous, to be caring. That's what the church was supposed to be. Melchizedek blesses Abram with his blessing. Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek one-tenth of all the goods that he had recovered. That's the first tithe ever recorded in scripture. Now check this out. So this is what it was supposed to be. Melchizedek goes out. He's representing he. Here's grace. Here's generosity. Here's comfort. You went and risked your life and risked all your men. And you didn't have to do any of that, but you did it. We just want to love on you. And, and you've you got to be tired and hungry here. Take something to eat. Rest. The other guy, King of Sodom, represents the world. The King of Sodom shows up and he says, Hey, why don't you give me back my people who were captured, but I'll let you keep all the goods that you've recovered. Here's why this is shady, because that makes sense to us, right? Abram didn't owe anybody anything. By the law of the land, the standard of that day, 
Abram gets to keep anything he wins in battle. That was universal. That was the legal, moral law. Nobody can take anything from Abram as far as like, you owe us this. He didn't owe anybody anything. He didn't take anything from the king of Sodom or from any of the kings of the plain. The Mesopotamian army came in, took all that they wanted, and then Abram went after the Mesopotamian army and he took it from them. Anything he won from battle was his to keep. Anything. He could keep absolutely 100% of it. The king of Sodom could do nothing about it. But the king of Sodom's like, I'll tell you what. Give me the people, you keep the stuff. And it'll be a, a fair deal. Anybody else besides Abram be like, go, go pound sand, bro. <laughs> if he's from New England, he'd say something else. And he, I mean, it'd be like, like, I don't owe you that. I don't owe you that. But what we see here, when I think Lot would remember a couple months after the story's over, looking back, and watching his uncle have this conversation with the king of Sodom. Look what Abram says. Abram replied to the king of Sodom, I solemnly swear to the Lord most high, the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, I'm not going to take so much as a single thread or a sandal thong from you, bro. I don't want any of your stuff. Otherwise, you might say, well, I'm the one who made Abram rich. I'm going to accept only what my young warriors have already eaten, and I request that you give a fair share of the goods to my allies, Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre. Here's what Abram does in the middle of, being, of, of having a, yet one more opportunity. He was so gracious to Lot, and Lot took the best and gave him the desert, and yet God still took care of him. Now he does what he's supposed to do and go out and rescue Lot, and he's like, well, I did something, and now I've got this giant windfall. I wasn't expected to have all these riches and all these extra servants and slaves, but look at me. And in the middle of that, what he does is he says, nope, I'm going to give 10% to God. And I'm going to just give that away because God didn't have to give me anything, but I'm going to give that to God. And then he takes the rest and he goes, you can just have it back, bro. You can just have it back. And when you and I begin to talk about what it is that God's called us to, I don't care what you give. That's between you and God. But a lot of people are like, oh, I can't give 10%. I can't give 10%. You need to stop. Abraham gave 100%. That's the point, is that every single thing he has comes from God. It's not about the percentage. It's about the fact that you recognize where it came from. He didn't, he didn't make a profit at all. He, I'm sure some of his men died. He risked his men's life. He risked his own life. He spent all of his time, all of that. And he got nothing to show for it. You could argue he got his, his nephew back, which is really all he cared about. But you and I, we would look at it like, oh man, the king of Sodom won. King of Sodom was a shrewd businessman. No, the king of Sodom dies a horrible death. Abraham goes on to become the father of many nations. 4,000 years after this is written, we still admire and honor Abraham for the man that he became and nothing about the king of Sodom. Because here's the difference. When you begin to trust God with stuff, you begin to recognize God is a little bit bigger than all the things that I want for myself. So I can either let go or hang on to. And I think Lot would tell you and I, looking at his uncle, staring at that moment, he would say two things. The first thing, looking at, at Abraham's generosity, he would say this, great generosity comes from genuine humility. You have to have a humility that says, nothing that I got for myself should I keep for myself. Why? Because God gave me literally everything. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians 9, verse, verses 7 through 9, it says, each of you must decide in your own heart how much to give. Don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. Why? Because God isn't looking for you to go like this. Okay, God, here's some for you. Abraham was like, thanks, Melchizedek. Listen, God has blessed me. Take this, man. Just take it. 
Give that to God. We have never passed an offering plate in our church long before COVID. We never passed because I didn't want our church to be one more church that pressured people into giving money. People already think that churches are weird and, and greedy does not need to be on that list either. I can't help it that you're weird. I try really hard to be cool, but you're weird. I can't help it. We don't have to be greedy, and that's not what God's called us to. He's called it to be the people that want to give generously. You need to find a way in your own heart to go, God, how do we give back? How do I give everything I got? It's not because I'm awesome at business. It's not because I'm so skilled. It's because you let my heart beat today. It's because you gave me a brain and a body to function. If I have a great job, if I make a great paycheck, that's not because I'm great. It's because you are great. And let me give back to you. As we do that, as we let go of some of this stuff, we begin to understand. He says, God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide all you need. Then you'll always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. And as the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. That's talking about the church. The first church was known for being generous, taking care of the poor. Their good deeds are remembered forever. Why? Because they shared, because they were generous. That's what God's called us to be. And if you think I'm talking about your paycheck, I'm talking about everything. You need to share your time, your talents, your treasures, and your testimony. Everything God has given you can be used to bless people around you. If you don't want to bless Harbor Church, go be a part of a church that you want to be on mission with. If you don't like the mission here, go be a part of a church where you're like, I want to give to that mission because God's blessed you. Turn around and bless others. Anything that comes into our church, before we pay a bill, we try to bless others with it off the top as an organization because that's what you and I are supposed to do as individuals. This is another thing that God says. The only time in the Bible that God ever says to test him, Malachi 3.10, it says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there'll be enough food in my temple. If you do this, says the Lord of Heaven's army, if you bring your tithe in, if you give a percentage of what you have, I'm going to open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great that you won't have enough room to take it in. I tell you what, try it, exclamation point, God says. Test me. Only time in all of scripture that God says you can test him. Test him on giving to him and just see if he doesn't give you back more. That he doesn't take care of you in ways that you couldn't take care of yourself. This is from God. And I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you, it's a struggle, but I think genuine, like real generosity comes from this genuine place of humility where I didn't get it for me anyways. I think Lot would have, would definitely have recognized that. But you know the thing I, I really think Lot would have taken away? At the very end, even after seeing all the generosity and bravery of Abraham, I think he would have sat down and re remembered the moment he was sitting there in chains or tied up, maybe in a cage, maybe just out tied to a bunch of other people sitting in the mud. I just, I think he would have remembered being in bondage and he remembered somebody sneaking into camp. Maybe it was Abraham saying, hey, wake up. We're here. We're setting you free. Hey, come on. It's time to go. Taking those shackles off. You're free. And I think in that moment, as much as he loved Abram, his uncle, he really loved Abram, the rescuer. He really loved being set free. And the relationship from somebody he liked or, or, or had, a had a small relationship with, it changed when he realized, I've been set free. And what you've got to realize about, about Abram in this story is that he's an early picture of Jesus. He was willing to leave safety and comfort and luxury and go put himself in harm's way to set somebody else free. Abraham wasn't attacked. He could have just, hey, they messed with you. They didn't mess with me. That's fine. Jesus could have just stayed up in heaven and said, hey, 
figure it out. But he leaves heaven and comes to earth. Why? Not because he needed to be set free, but because he loved you so much and he knew you needed to be set free. There's something powerful. If you talked a lot, he would tell you there is something so powerful about being rescued, about being saved, about being set free. You, have, you almost have to understand the captivity. It takes you being in captivity to appreciate the rescue. Some of you are enchained are right now in some deep and heavy ways. And the reason you're there is because God's going, I've got a rescue for you and I want you to see it. I want you to feel it. I want you to believe it. I want you to know that I, I'm the kind of God who reaches into the brokenness to pull you out of it. And this is the beautiful message that's all throughout the Bible is Abram setting up an early, an early example of what Jesus looks like. I will come in and I will take your chains off. It's what Moses did to the children of Israel enslaved in Egypt. I'm a God who rescues. I'm a chain breaker, a way maker is what we sang. This is what we celebrate. If you, if you look at it, in Psalms 91 verse 14 says this. The Lord says, I will rescue. This is a promise from God. I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. When they call on me, I will answer. Some of you just haven't called on your rescue. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. First Peter chapter two says this. He personally carried our sins on his body. If you're sitting there going, I don't know if God can rescue me. Look at what this verse says. He carried our sins on his body to the cross. Why? So that we, uh, that we are, who are dead to sin can live. He went and took our death and took our death on him. He took our sin on him. Why? Because he was rescuing us. You, we can't rescue ourselves. I can't get rid of my sin. I can't pay my debt, but he paid my debt. How? By his wounds, you are healed. Our salvation, our healing, our forgiveness comes from a God who did the same thing that Abraham did, which is go put himself in harm's way to say, hey, I want to set you free. Abraham didn't die for a lot. Jesus died for you. Jesus gave up his life so that you could be set free. Here's the truth for all of us. I don't care how bad you are or how good you are. Every single one of us is either in need of being rescued or has been rescued. That's it. Either, either you've allowed Jesus to set you free from your sins or you still need him to do that. You're in one of those two categories. Everybody on the planet is in one of those two categories. Most people are in the category they still need to be set free. So if that's you, if you're under the sound of my voice right now, you need to understand that Jesus Christ died for you to release you from a captivity worse than lots. You're held chained to your sin and to your past. And Jesus Christ died to set you free from that. If you've already experienced that freedom that comes from Christ, then you've got to be the next Abram. Your job is to go and continue to tell more people how they can be set free. If you've got the light in you, you're now, you're now responsible to reflect the light to more and more people. If you're sitting there going, I don't know how to do that, Pastor, then let me leave you with Psalm 71. It says, save me. If you want to know what you need to say, what you need to pray, Psalm 71 is a great, great prayer. God, save me. Rescue me. Why? You always do what's right, God. Turn your ear. God, listen to me. Please listen to me. Set me free. It doesn't have to be these exact words, but it needs to be that heart. God, I need you more than I need myself. 
Some of you, you've already experienced that freedom, but you've allowed divisions to keep you from the people you're supposed to share that freedom with. Some of you have allowed your pride, your desire for better to get in the way of sharing that freedom. Some of you, you've allowed your ego to keep you from being humble and generous and sharing that freedom. If you need the freedom, invite Jesus in. If you already have the freedom, figure out how you can help more people find that freedom. That's what we learned from, from Abraham and Lot. That's what it means to refocus on our mission today. Will you pray with me? As I pray out loud, would you pray right where, right where you're seated or wherever you're at? As you listen to my voice, just take a second and do a little inventory. Do you have Jesus Christ in your life? Has he set you free from your sin? If the answer is no, then right now in this moment, would you invite Jesus Christ? Would you invite the Savior of the world who left heaven to die on a cross for you? Would you invite him in? The Bible says you have to admit that you're a sinner and then give him control. Allow him to be the Lord of your life. So if you would move out of the driver's seat and let God take the steering wheel, you say, God, you call the shots. I don't need to be the one in charge anymore. If you do that, the Bible says that God will save you, that you'll have the Holy Spirit, and you'll have a home in heaven one day. If you'll do that and trust God for the very first time, that's called salvation, and it's the most important decision you'll ever make. You can pray right now as I'm talking. You can pray right there in your seat and have a conversation between you and God. And for everyone else, I promise you that if you already have been rescued, then God wants to use you in a powerful way. Prepare yourself. Make yourself available. Humble yourself so that nothing is beneath you. You will rescue whoever God puts in front of you. Put yourself in a place where God can use you in your kid's life, in your spouse's life, in your parent's life, in your, your co-worker's life, your neighbor's life, your friend's. Let God use you to see somebody else be rescued. As I pray, you pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you so much for who you are and what you've given us. God, thank you for loving us. God, thank you for the story of Abraham and Lot, and thank you for what it means to know you and to pursue you and to have a relationship with you. God, I pray that you be with the person or the sound of my voice that needs to invite you in for the very first time. God, I pray that you would give them the strength and the courage to right now open their heart and accept you as their Lord and Savior. And God, I pray for the people that already claim to know you, that we would do a better job loving and caring and sharing and being generous and being humble. And God, let us go after the people who are hurting. Don't let us focus on our own safety. Instead, God, allow us to step into the battles that you've already won and give us the courage to do it. God, we need you. So badly we need you. We ask this and pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen. If you'd like to support the ministries of Harbor as we bring the hope of Jesus to our community and around the world, you can visit harborchurch.com give or text any amount to 84321. Thanks for listening. See you next week.